You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to a combined edition of the A's Plus and Giants Double Play podcasts. I'm Chronicle A's beat writer Susan Slusser. And I'm Giants beat writer Henry Schulman. And we are bringing you uh, some extra podcasting this week from a live event we did at the Chronicle on Tuesday, February 5th with a live audience and moderator Al Sarasovic, the Chronicle sports editor. Henry and I took questions from the crowd. You will hear that right after this. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Hi, good evening, everybody. My name is Al Sarasovic. How are you? I'm the sports editor here at the Chronicle. I write an occasional column, but you're not here to listen to me. You're here to do, to listen to uh, Chronicle Talks Baseball with two of the best beat writers in the business. Uh, to my left and your right, I have Henry Schulman, longtime beat writer for the uh, San Francisco Giants here at the Chronicle. Um, Henry's, yeah, let's hear it for Henry. Henry's been on the, uh, on the job 30 years uh, covering baseball, 21 of them here at the Chronicle. He is, uh, without a doubt, the, uh, the elder statesman of the uh, Giants uh, press box and the dean, of, uh, the dean of writers. I don't know if he likes that. Um, so you know Henry, and he's on the Giants. Uh, to, to my right, we have uh, Susan Slusser, who covers the Oakland A's. <laughs> Susan is another one of the stars of the Chronicle Newsroom. She was just recently named Co-Sports Writer of the Year for the state of California. Let's hear that. <laughs> Woo! Susan also has 30 years on the job covering all kinds of sports, uh, but her primary role with us has been with the Oakland A's, and she covers it as well as anyone. So there you have it. Now that, that brings me to the next question. I'd like to see uh, a little bit of support for the two teams. How many Giants fans do we have in the crowd? Uh, uh-oh, Susan. I don't know what to say here. How many A's fans do we have? Yeah! You know... That pretty much sums up the whole thing here. There's, there's probably a few more Giants fans, but the A's fans are really loud. You know what I mean? That kind of sums up the whole deal. Before we get going on that very topic, to kick things off, I wanted to uh, thank everyone for coming. This is our inaugural event here at the member space at the Chronicle. We're very happy to have a sellout crowd tonight. We sold out in like 10 minutes, so thank you very much for supporting the Chronicle. It's, it's super important for us to uh, show our appreciation to our subscribers and our members and keep that uh, connection to the community strong. Um, 
the, the subscribers mean everything to this paper. It's what keeps the Chronicle strong and keeps our connection with you uh, going. So thank you very much. You know, that reaction we got between the Big Giants group and a, and a Loud A's group kind of kicks us right into the topic I wanted to start with, which is uh, it seems like these two fine writers are covering the same thing, but they're really covering two different organizations. The Giants and the A's are different in the way they do things. They're different in personality and they're different in fan base. So I'd like to ask Giant, uh, Henry and, and Susan to, to start off with that. What, how would you characterize the Giants as a beat and uh, maybe a little bit in relation to the A's, and then Susan will do the same. You've never sat on a bar stool before, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm keeping one foot on the ground, Henry. <laughs> That's my trick. Um, I, I kind of look at the audience reaction just is perfect for what I was going to say, which to me, you know, the Giants versus the A's to me is like IBM versus Apple. Uh, yeah. You know, you, it, it, I just imagine these IBM offices, people in their shirts and suits and ties, walking around going, shh, don't, you know, don't be very loud, and, and, and yet they're, they're bigger by sales, uh, or used to be anyway. Uh, and, uh, you know, Apple uh, is the place where you could, you know, just kind of be yourself and, I don't know, casual Fridays, do whatever you want, that sort of thing. And I think that's how the, the beats really work. I mean, the Giants are really uh, very corporate, uh, and uh, the A's a little less so. Uh, the clubhouses are, are different. I think Susan will attest to that. Uh, the Giants clubhouse is very, it's older players, very staid, um, you know, they, it, you, know it's, uh, you don't really see a lot of the players hanging out when they do, they're not really joking around with each other, and I go to the A's sometimes, and, you know, they, they, they were playing with drones in the middle of, the, you know, whatever it was, and it, you had to duck every so often when there was a drone. So, uh, we both do the same things in terms of the stories that we write, uh, the podcasting that we do, although Susan's been way ahead of that on me, so... Props to her, um, and uh, it, but but it really is. We go to work, and it's it's just like it's like two different places. Uh, and uh, you know, the A's, frankly, are a little more fun. <laughs> Susan, would you agree? Yeah, the A's are super fun, and they do more with less. Uh, they like to go under the radar, and last year they had virtually no starting pitching. Their entire rotation was hurt right from the get-go, pretty much, and they still somehow snuck into the playoffs. And then they almost started dismantling again, and they're going into this season with almost no starting pitching. So they give me plenty to write about, is what I'm saying, which is <laughs> really what a beat writer wants. And they, the clubhouse is very relaxed. Um, you know, there's always like a like a Nerf basketball game going on, or uh, they're so young, right? Because the A's are cheap, so it's a very, very young team. <laughs> so they're necessarily uh, more fun because it's a bunch of like 23, 24 year olds uh, for the most part. But then you see Billy Bean wanders through and he's always wearing flip flops and shorts. It's very, very different from any other really probably sports uh, executive suite, I think, in, in the country. It's yeah, you'd, you'd have, uh, you know, Billy in his, in his flip flops and just looking like a guy who's about to go to the beach, and there'd be Brian Sabian looking a little uptight with his flip phone, um, <laughs> which actually he no longer uses. He actually has a smartphone now, now that he's no longer the, the general manager. Things are going to change a little bit. They have a young uh, baseball ops pres now. So, and, From the, uh, the Players will be younger, too, a little bit, eventually. Eventually. Is that why they didn't make any trades? Because he was working on that flip phone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> that could have been it. It, it, just w one small story on that. I remember being at a Giants playoff game, and, and afterwards all the players came out with their wives, and there was a lot of handshakes and hugging on the field. And uh, 
uh, the children ran out, and there was a couple grandparents smattered around. And I remember being at an A's game after the playoffs, and all their girlfriends jumped out of the stands and ran onto the field, and they were all making out. And it was like a whole different, whole different vibe between the the, the married the married giants and the, the swinging A's. Right there, you have it. Um, so uh, I think that's a good start on, on on the difference between this. And I'm guessing a lot of you knew this general difference in personality. Um, let's get down to the nitty gritty though, and uh, both these teams, uh, Henry and Susan, are heading south shortly for uh, spring training. Uh, why don't we switch the order here and ask Susan to kick it off. Uh, what are you expecting out of this A's team? They got to a one-game playoff? Are they going back? Well, I, they won 97 games last year, which is extraordinary. I think going into the season, people kept, they always ask you, what do you think? And I think I said, I, I thought 82 wins, and I thought that would be a really good season, so it was a little bit off. Um, but I don't see how they win 97 games again this year going in with right now essentially two firm starters in the rotation. I'm sure they will sign somebody else at some point. But they are going to continue doing the whole opener thing, which you guys probably are uh, familiar with. And I think the Giants are probably going to do a little bit of uh, – so they'll, con they'll continue tinkering. They'll sign some guys. They'll probably, you know, acquire, reacquire, all that kind of thing. Um, but they still have this young, very fun nucleus. Uh, Matt Chapman and Matt Olson at the corners are about as fun as you know, young players and good young players. Matt Chapman is a potential MVP, in my mind, down the road. Uh, and Chris Davis, who's led all of baseball in home runs over his entire time with the A's. So that's a pretty nice lineup to build around if they can just work their magic with the pitching. And there's nobody better than the A's front office at identifying pitching from other organizations or maybe um, you know, somebody who's just been released or waived, uh, and then either kind of tailoring what they should do to the A's ballpark or figuring out some that different pitch. They're wonderful at that. So. Maybe they'll contend. I'm not sure they're a playoff team, but I think they'll, they will at least surprise. They'll make things interesting the way they, they tend to do, and, and uh, I think it'll be a, a fun year at the Coliseum. Solid lineup with question marks on the starting pitching. How many rotations did they go through last year? I think they oh. burned through two full <laughs> starting rotations. They started on their third yeah, and then just, just started about, pitching the bullpen at the right, beginning exactly. of the game, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it was then it was Liam Hendricks starting every other game essentially. <laughs> pitching one inning. Are, are we going to see the staid conservative Giants doing the same kind of thing this year, Henry? What do uh, you see for the team? The Giants are getting a new high def scoreboard. Next question. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's been an exciting offseason for Henry. Kiss cam, sixth inning, be there. <laughs> you know, uh, this, is, uh, this is kind of a fascinating year for the Giants uh, because, you know, they, they've overplayed their hand a little bit on this. Let's, let's try and win every year. I mean, when you, when you win three World Series in five years, it's really hard to say, you know what, the, the roster's getting old we got to try and, you know, maybe move away from some of these guys and, and bring in younger players. Uh, it's, it's hard to do because, you know, all you Giants fans are invested in these players. And uh, so they, you know, I, I was just talking outside to uh, some of the folks about this. Uh, after they, you know, the, the collapse of 2016 in the playoffs in the, in the game four against the, the Cubs, they felt they had a decent team and really what they needed was uh, a closer, somebody to nail down the ninth inning. And they went out and spent all the, Bobby Evans spent all the off-season money that he had, all the spare money that he had on Mark Melanson, which was not a good decision because uh, he 
Um, you know, he had arm trouble, and now we're learning after the fact. I mean, he told us, oh, yeah, this happened to me every year. I just get over it after about 10 days. Uh, and then, then they lost 98 games, and I think that after they lost 98 games, they really should have realized right there, okay, this isn't working. We've got to make some changes. But again, because they were so invested in, in this core, what they call the, the core, uh, they, they doubled down, and they went after Evan Longoria and uh, Andrew McCutcheon, and the roster just got older. And, you know, they stayed in it for most of the year only because the, the division was mediocre. So now, really, what the Giants really need to rebuild. What, that's what they really need to do. But you, they can't just tank like, like some teams do because of all the big contracts they have. Now, they're, they're going to try and move some of these contracts. I'm sure they've tried to move some of these contracts, but it isn't easy. So what Zadie, the new uh, baseball ops president, has done so far is he, he's going to go, okay, you know, I, I, it doesn't make sense to throw a whole bunch of money at more older free agents uh, just to fill these needs. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start at the back end of this roster, and I'm going to get as many decent um, sort of 4A players and, uh, you know, maybe not prospects anymore, but minor leaguers who have some promise and uh, just try and fill the roster with guys you can interchange uh, in the minors and whatnot. And then, you know, hopefully by the end of the offseason, uh, maybe we'll be able to pick up a couple of outfielders who, who can help the team. And, uh, you know, the pitching staff is, is rather, I mean, they have pitchers. They, you know, they have pitchers. They, they need, they have infielders. They need outfielders. And, uh, it's not done yet. Uh, it's, I mean, the calendar is different. But, I mean, what do you expect? Uh, calendar is different in terms of, you know, it's a later off season. So the question is, are they really going to just be like an 81 and 81 team? Well, that would be an improvement over last year. And that, it, it's said that you don't want to be an 81 and 81 team nowadays. You either want to go for it or you want to tank. The Giants really can't because of their financial commitments. I can't, I mean, it would be interesting to me to see what kind of team it is, but I would not... Uh, encourage you to postpone your October vacations. <laughs> Let me put it that way. You're safe with that cruise in October, says Henry Schulman. I like that. Um, a really interesting dynamic is that a former executive at the A's is now in charge at the Giants. So the Giants are looking across the bay to a team that hasn't won a World Series in forever. And, that, and you know, do they feel like that's a blueprint they want to follow, Henry? Like the way the A's have been built? <laughs> Ultimately, yeah, I think. I mean, the, the Giants have the advantage of, uh, they'll always, they'll have a bigger payroll than the A's because of the ballpark. Uh, that new scoreboard's going to bring in tons of new people. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, it, 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 this is a, you know, Zadie came from the A's. He's a disciple of uh, Billy Bean, and uh, we are living in a Moneyball world now, and uh, what that means now in, in the present day, 15 years after the movie came out, or the book came out, is that wins and losses uh, are calculated. Uh, people put, uh, front offices put a dollar figure on, uh, you know, war. War is a big number. Uh, wins and, and, you know, you, the days when front offices are just going to say, hey, you know what, let's give this guy four years at $60 million. We might get one good year out of him and we'll go for it and then we're going to have this bad player at the end of the contract. And nowadays it's more... Um, well, you know, why should I give that guy $8 million if he's going to provide three wins when I got this guy in the minors who might be able to give me one and a half wins for $545,000, uh, which is the major league minimum. So I think that the Giants are going to try and go to the A's sort of philosophy on that, but they have the money. They have the money right now to go out and get Bryce Harper if they wanted to. 
Oh. I don't know if Bryce Harper wants to come here. I don't know if he's heard the news that Hunter Strickland was released, and it will be in Seattle. <laughs> but they can, they can do it in ways that the A's really can't. Uh, they, can, they can do the whole Moneyball thing. They can do the whole, let's get a bunch of uh, hungry young players in here and see what they can do before we give all the big money away. But if we need to, we can still give the big money away. So they can go out and get good young players and then not trade them after a couple of years. That's an interesting idea. Hmm. Well, I think he's also arguing that they might want to trade them because but, they will start to get expensive and then you're in the ah, same boat that you're in right in now. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, is there, uh, I, I love the core that you talked about with uh, Oakland, uh, Chapman and Olsen on the corners. Chris Davis might be the most um, under or unassuming home run hitter in baseball history. I don't think people know about him outside of the Bay Area in a weird way. Um, are the A's going to hold on to this core this time around, Susan? We've seen this movie before. We've seen amazing groups of young talent put together. Are they going to hold on? Well, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, they've got to start with Chris Davis, um, who they've talked about uh, signing to a long-term deal. In this case, I think it would probably be like three years, which is not that long t term, but it takes him, they have him for this year and then he's a free agent, but they would give him a qualifying offer for next year. I think he most assuredly would take it. So they know they really have him for the next two years. So if they're gonna talk multi-year deal with him, they really need to make it three, which would be great because then you've got him, you've got Chapman, you've got Olsen, you've got all these good young pitchers coming up like Lazardo, AJ Puck when he's back from his Tommy John surgery, uh, people like that. And then this starts to become a pretty interesting roster. So I think they would do that. Now the question is, do you sign Olsen and Chapman and guys like that long-term? Uh, Chapman's agent is Scott Boris. Scott Boris' current theory on the market is when you've got a good young player, you don't sign him to a long-term deal that takes him past his arbitration years. And you also don't buy out your arbitration years cheap because that's where the young players are making their money is arbitration. So the A's have approached both Chapman and Olson about long-term deals, which is the best they can do. And the, their agent said, and you know what, we're going to just wait and take our chances in arbitration. And then when they go out in the free agent market, they're younger and they would make more. Because we've all seen what happens in free agency now with older players. There's, a lot of them are still sitting on the sidelines right now, even some of the best players in the game. So uh, I, I, I'm skeptical, uh, but I've also been covering this team for 21 years. And I think that there's been Eric Chavez's six-year deal, and that's pretty much it. So. <laughs> Oh, and Indeed. Billy Butler's three-year deal. That was a good one. Yeah, everyone liked that. <laughs> what was his nickname? That was a good sign. Breakfast. Good, that was good, good sign. Good sign. Indeed, it's been a weird free agency uh, uh, offseason. Uh, not a whole lot of action so far. Henry, can you explain why that is? Well, I, I, I did a little not bit. Not just for the Giants. I, but. Yeah, I did a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, well, you have the issue of uh, front offices, like I talked about, equating wins to dollars and moving accordingly. But... The other reason is that you have three tiers of teams right now. Uh, you have the few teams at the top that really feel they need to go for it. Yankees and Red Sox are going to be there every year. Uh, the, the Phillies are in there now. I believe the, you know, the White Sox feel they're there. The Dodgers are always there. So you have that small upper tier. Then you have a larger group of teams that have just decided they're going to tank. That they, they have no chance of winning, so we're not going to spend any money. We're going to build our farm systems up and uh, hope to compete that way with homegrown players, which is a large group. Then you have the teams that are in the middle, and this is where the Giants fit, uh, as well as some other teams, where 
they, they want bargains. And they can get bargains because uh, there's less demand for these free agents. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if there's less demand, it's just, you know, less demand, then they can sit and wait. And that's one of the things the Giants are doing. I mean, there are some good mid-level free agents out there who would fit the Giants perfectly. Marwin Gonzalez uh, of, the, uh, of the Astros, I mean, he'd be perfect. He's another Boris client, so he's not going to sign quickly or cheaply. Um, but then there are some guys like Adam Jones, who's, uh, what is he, 33 or something, yeah. something thereabouts. And, uh, you know, he, he probably feels he could get, you know, he'd like to get a three-year contract somewhere. But nobody's going to give him a three-year contract now because of his age, because teams feel they can use that money, uh, save that money, and then bring in a younger guy. So we just have this thing that's going gonna, gonna to blow up uh, on baseball when the new collective bargaining agreement comes along. But uh, teams just uh, don't want to spend that kind of money. And from trade, the trade standpoint, uh, teams don't want to give away their young prospects. Teams, I mean, in my opinion, they overvalue prospects. Uh, Casey Stern, who does, uh, he's a, a broadcaster. He does the basketball on TNT. Uh, he also does baseball on, on Sirius uh, MLB, he, uh, XM Radio. He, he has a great saying. He says, prospects are cool, parades are cooler. <laughs> and and uh, teams just don't want to give up, um, you know, uh, prospects to get good players. And the Giants can't. The Giants don't have that many, like, blue chip prospects. So, yeah, they could get uh, maybe a 29-year-old uh, good young outfielder from a team that has a surplus. But they're, they're going to come back, and they're, they're going to ask for what few good prospects, the Elliot Ramos, whom the, you know, the Giants don't want to trade. Uh, you know, people are going to ask about Joey Bart. They, they are asking about Joey Bart. And, you know, the Giants really are in a position where they can't really afford to trade prospects to get better right now. So things like that are what are keeping the market down. I think, I think a lot of teams looked at what the Astros did, stockpiling their draft choices and getting a really good young core, and they don't want to trade their top prospects. So the game's becoming younger. I, I cover some hockey here and there. Hockey's becoming a young man's game. Baseball's becoming a young man's game. A lot young man's game. Some of it's economics, but some of it is just in baseball, the guys are throwing 100 miles an hour coming out of colleges, and teams are willing to just kind of, you know, blow out their arms young kind of go through them. Um, and hockey's a little bit the same way. It's faster, stronger. You want the young guys, and the older guys are, are not valued as much. And by the way, the Giants, uh, one of the things they've done is they've acquired a whole bunch of pitchers, to, to Susan's point, that you've never heard of, probably have never heard of, but they all throw gas. And that's what the game has become. They got one today. They made a minor trade for uh, a pitcher named Jake Barrett, who uh, is from the Diamondbacks organization. He pitched about 100 games in the majors, not all that good, but, you know, he throws gas. And uh, he's, you know, it, it is sort of like a relief pitching. is like, okay, throw as hard as you can for as long as you can, then we'll get the next guy in, which is not conducive to uh, making a lot of money. And, it, uh, you know, buy stock in Tommy John surgery. If you, <laughs> can you buy stock in a surgery? I don't know. Elbow tendons. Elbow but you're going to see some guys in spring training, and you're going to go, who is that guy? And uh, these, are, these are players that they picked up from other organizations and, uh, you know, maybe the uh, 41st guy on some other team's roster. And Zadie's been pretty good. Uh, he, you know, in, in Oakland and in, in Los Angeles, been pretty good at finding guys that may be undervalued by other teams that, you know, might be able to contribute to the Giants. We have the exact opposite philosophy here in Chronicle. We believe in longevity, and we see that here with Henry Shulman and Susan Slusser. Uh, I wanted to thank you all again to come into uh, Chronicle Talks Baseball with these two great beat writers. 
both of these writers have covered some great teams, some great moments. They've covered some lousy teams, too. I wanted to ask both Henry and Susan. Uh, why don't we start with Susan here? Um, give us a couple of your greatest hits. What were the, the, some of the biggest moments you covered and some of the most interesting people that you've covered in your uh, tenure covering the A's? Well, the best moment, um, I don't think anybody uh, will be surprised to hear, is Dallas Braden's perfect game on Mother's Day in 2010. It was special for a million reasons. Of course, it was the 19th perfect game in big league history, and just being there for a perfect game is... Uh, extraordinary, you know, the tension by the end of the game, each each out, each pitch is just so magnified. And, you know, at that point, we're all tweeting everything that happens, and then we're, you know, you get like a thousand people responding, stop jinxing it. Um, so I can attest to the fact that Twitter does not jinx a perfect game, because it did not <laughs> jinx Dallas Braden. But um, the backstory was even better because Dallas Braden and a lot of people, you know, remember Dallas Braden and now probably also know him from his work on the A's broadcast. Uh, he's very colorful, very flamboyant, very funny, smart. Um, but he grew up in Stockton, loves Stockton, you know, wears a, a Stockton tattoos and, and is really into it. And his mother died when he was a teenager of melanoma and his grandmother raised him. And she was there, was, he said Mother's Day was always a, the worst day for him. He hated Mother's Day. Um, but his grandmother was there the day he pitched the perfect game at the Coliseum, and at the end, she came out of the stands, and they had this. Oh. So it almost makes me like choke up a little bit right now. They hugged. It was just so sweet, and, and they, you know, he felt like his mom, Jody, was there with him, and that was great. But there was even more backstory, and I'm sorry, I might, I could go on no, and on and on you about go this on one. And on. But this just few, writes itself. A few weeks before that, um, Dallas had gotten in this uh, war of words with Alex Rodriguez. Uh, the Yankees, right. then the Yankees. Um, uh, on a, A-Rod was at first base, took off on a foul ball that wound up being foul, cut back across the pitcher's mound to get back to first base, and Dallas yelled at him, get the, uh, for our podcast listeners, get the fudge off my mound. And, um, and it continued after the game. They both, they both uh, we were taking shots at him. A-Rod essentially said, who is Dallas Braden? I don't even know who he is. And uh, wow. it, 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 it kind of escalated over the, the, the next few weeks. And then after Dallas threw uh, the perfect game, somebody asked A-Rod about it, and he said, uncle, okay, that's good, that's good enough. But after, we, we talked to his grandmother after the game, and I said uh, something like, after all this stuff with A-Rod, you know, what's, what's it like to come out and, and see your grandson throw a perfect game? You know, A-Rod was just saying, like, who, who is this guy? I've never even heard of him. And um, she took the high road initially and said, <laughs> and said, like, oh, well, I'm just so happy. This is just so wonderful. And then, then she paused for a couple of seconds, and then she went, stick it, A-Rod. <laughs> so... Yeah, Grandma. That's, that's a tough moment to top. That, I, I, I love that one. That's so. fantastic, and uh, I think all three of us have been at very big games like that. Do you find yourself getting more nervous as the game? Now you have to write this thing. You're yeah. history, right? I was nervous. That our copy desk was nervous. I yeah. think I was call, calling you. I was calling every, like, get somebody else out here. They, I think Scott Osler zipped right. out at the last second and have to make sure a photographer's are there. But, yeah, it's, everyone's on pins and needles. And uh, Dallas actually forgot what the count was on the final batter. Oh, wow. um, he thought that it was a 3-1 count. It was actually 2-2, and he threw a pitch he would not have thrown had he known the correct count. And he still thought it was the wrong count after the game because he heard a replay of it, and he thought, oh, why does Ken Korak... Why, Ken Korak didn't know what the count was. Like, <laughs> no, it was you, Dallas. So he Goodness. even got a little caught up in it. That's, that's fantastic stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, 
apparently Twitter does not jinx uh, perfect games or no hitters, but I can tell you that as soon as the editor is called and then we send more resources to the stadium, that usually jinxes it. So the fact that Dallas Braden was able to overcome the fact that we had sent extra staff mid-game to make sure that we had it all covered, uh, that was extra special uh, performance. And uh, I'll get back to you about other characters you've, you've covered, but let's, let's move it over to Henry and, and ask, uh, boy, you and I have been at some very big games over the last seven or three years of championships over five years. Anything come out of that uh, experience, or what would you point to as a highlight of your career? Um, well, first of all, making fun of people who show up at no-hitters in the sixth inning and then write these flowery <laughs> prose about everything they saw, that's one of my highlights. You would, be, you would be shocked at how often that happens. There was one writer, and I won't name him, but he lived in Oakland, and uh, he could get to the Coliseum in like 10 minutes. And I saw him, it would be great. He'd rush in there, he'd be there in the sixth inning, and then, you know, the guy would give up a hit, he'd turn around, back in the car, <laughs> out he went. I mean, it's, it's, it's been so many for me. I mean, uh, how the sausage is made, sadly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I go back to, uh, my first year was 1988, so obviously I go back to uh, Will Clark's single off of uh, Mitch Williams in 1989. I mean, I was there for Kevin Mitchell's one-handed catch. Now, he, he, was, he was a character. Um, and... Uh, you know, and uh, there was this Bonds guy who, um, he was a joy to work with. He, he really was. He, hey, Henry, come over here. What do you want to know? Uh, you know, come on, come here. Have a seat. Have a seat. Take a load off. Um, he, he actually kind of threatened to kill me, and, th and that anecdote is in two different books, so you can look it up. Um, but, you know, I, you do kind of recall things that are more recent, and obviously covering three World Series championships, and you know, I, as a as a reporter, you don't really care about outcomes. You really don't. I mean, if you win, you write a win. If they lose, you write a loss. I always wanted just one time, though, to cover a team from the first day of spring training all the way to the last game of the the World Series, and I came within about I don't know seven outs of doing that in 2002, um, and it didn't work out. Um, and uh, but but when it finally happened. Um, it was just, it was surreal, uh, and I'm sure Susan will agree to that. The hardest stories to write, these big ones are the hard stories to write. Uh, you know, uh, Bonds hitting number 73, Bonds hitting 756. Uh, you win a World Series, you throw a no-hitter. Those are hard to write because in your head you think it has to be perfect. You think people are going to read this story for years to come, and um, I... I I sort of got out of that mindset when, uh, after the Giants won in, in 2010, I thought this would like, be for posterity. People would be looking at this in libraries and it, it, for years to come. What, what happened is that um, every time I went to a bar in the Bay Area and went to the restroom, they would have the story posted right there <laughs> where you're doing you know, what you do when you go to the restroom. And I'm going, yeah, posterity, huh? <laughs> It is a captive audience, Henry. You know, the, the night they won in 2010, it's just a very memorable moment for me. I remember uh, I, we went to talk to Edgar Renneria, who hit the three-run homer that won that game. And uh, he was doing – it was, he was hard to catch because they kept taking him from TV to TV. And uh, he went over to the – I think it was ESPN. And then uh, after he did about fourth or fifth interview, we caught up with him, and he just burst into tears. Um, and um, – uh, you know, Barry Zito was not on the roster for, for that postseason because he had had such a bad year. 
And, um, you know, after a World Series now, you do your interviews on the field for, for the most part. You don't do them in, usually in the clubhouse, which is good for us because we stay dry for the most part. Um, and uh, I just was running back and forth. And here's Barry Zito, a guy who was not even on the roster. You'd think he might be bitter, you know, about this. And you'd think, well, I just got a ring I don't deserve. And I met him right at the pitcher's mound. Ironically, I was walking this way. He's walking this way. And he just looked at me. He called me Hen. He goes, Hen, isn't this amazing? And he had the broadest smile in the world. And uh, it told me something about Barry that I'm sure Susan can relate to. And then later on, it did move to the clubhouse there in uh, Arlington. And another thing that has come to mind, you know, big time this week was um, Peter McGowan was in there. And... um, I remember I was with a large group of people who were interviewing Peter, who was no longer the managing general partner at that point, but obviously he set everything in motion. And I asked him, I, I said, and I didn't know the answer. Sometimes you ask a question, you don't, you know, you know what the answer is going to be. I really didn't know the answer. I said, Peter, does this make up for the 50 years that you didn't win? Does this make up for 2002? Before I could finish the question, he said, yes, absolutely, yes, this makes up for everything. And I thought about that a lot. I went to his memorial service. He had a private memorial yesterday. And, uh, you know, I'm happy that he was able to get three wins. So I don't have, like, a real hilarious story off the top of my head. But I, I think that that one just sort of, you know, sticks in my mind, that, that whole 2010, the night they won. Yeah, very timely story, uh, sad passing of Peter McGowan uh, this last weekend. And, uh, yeah, I also agree with you. That 2010 team seemed to embody something about the Bay Area, um, they were a little less corporate, a little uh, more, uh, you know, freakish. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, but between Tim Lincecum and Huff and uh, the, uh, uh, the the crazy antics and the uh, with Brian Wilson and all the rest, of that that team seemed to capture the heart and the spirit of the Bay Area. And then they went down to win in Texas. I thought there was some interesting irony in that whole thing. Um, Susan, you've covered a figure that's become kind of semi-mythic in, in baseball, and that's uh, normally you're talking about a player on the field, but we're talking about Billy Bean. Um, is he as smart? Is he a genius? Is he as smart as everyone thinks he is? Um, tell us what you know about Billy and uh, what you can share with the crowd about covering this guy who's become a big deal. Uh, I think you can o- always tell how smart somebody is from how funny they are, and he's extremely funny. I mean, he's just he's so quick-witted. Uh, but the thing that I think he does better than almost anyone uh, in sports is he hires well and he he gets this loyalty. David Forrest has been there, gosh, for 15, 16 years and had numerous opportunities to leave for promotions and has stayed there. Um, he's always hired very diverse uh, front offices. That's one of the reasons that Farhan uh, was there, the first... Um, Muslim GM in, in baseball history. Muslim Canadian, um, we figured Muslim out. First Canadian. Muslim Canadian yep. GM. Yep, yep. That's uh, because Billy gave, him, Billy, Billy gave him a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so he um, is very good at collaborating and finding the brightest minds. So everybody knows about the money ball thing and using advanced analytics. Sandy Alderson's actually the one that kind of started things uh, with that, with EAs, because he came from a legal background and he was not necessarily a sports guy. He was, he was the EAs lawyer um, initially when the Haas family took over. So uh, he, they, they really uh, always think outside the box, but Billy coming from a traditional playing standpoint did not go to college. He turned down a scholarship at Stanford to go straight to the, into the Met system. Um, and that now, that would be old school, right? That would be your traditional baseball figure coming from a no college uh, baseball playing past. Uh, but he 
he jumped right into the analytics like like nobody's business, and and he bought right into it and figured out a way to do it better and to to use the margins. CAs have to find uh, you know what what is everybody else doing? Well, we're going to zag because they're all zigging, and we're going to figure out what it is that we can just get little tiny margins here and there that'll give us an advantage. Uh, so yeah, I think he's brilliant. And he's also you know he's a, he's great for reporters because he's a great quote. He's also pretty accessible, a little bit less so the more kind of like high. You know, high flying he is. Getting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's accessible Brad to use. Yeah, yeah, once Brad Pitt, Pitt plays you in a movie, I guess it. You know, that's uh, maybe Don't your life is it. a little different at that point. But uh, it's not going to happen to any of us. Yeah, he's, he's he is fun to cover. And David Force, you know, they're both they're both very smart, uh, very good guys to deal with. And and uh, you know, they look they love what they do. They're very passionate about what they do. And they're good at it. They make something with uh, a little bit of money every uh, couple of years. They turn it around. I think we have to double back on the movie just a little bit. I remember we went to the premiere in Oakland, and uh, we all watched this. It was a really nicely done Hollywood uh, production on uh, what happened that year, and most of it really wasn't on point to what actually happened. There was no mention of the star players on that team, the three, big three pitchers, no mention of Tejada. And uh, I remember at the after party, Billy was there I, his, with his daughter, and one of the storylines in the in the movie was this touching scene where she's playing the guitar for him and everything. And I said, hey, you know, I got to meet her and we were just talking a little bit. I was like, so did uh, you continue on with the guitar and all that? She goes, she goes I, I never played guitar. <laughs> so you got to love Hollywood for that. Yeah, and, we uh, that a lot of, the, Hollywood takes a lot of liberties. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, obviously the no, no um, big three, no Tejada, who's the MVP of the league that year. That's uh, Scott Hatterberg. He yeah. was something. Book two, though. <laughs> yeah, the book two. The book was all about Hatterberg and Chad Bradford, and right. like, wait, what about? Uh, there's one mention of Tahada in the book, which is Miguel swings at Miguel swings at everything Tahada, and he was the MVP that year. So, uh, <laughs> much as I love Michael Lewis and I love the book, there was. But my favorite thing that happened, and it didn't wind up in the movie, but this kind of shows you at what Hollywood is, uh, what they're thinking. We walked into the press box one day, and they were filming in the press box, so they asked us to wait. Um, they were filming a press box scene, and when the reporters uh, left, it was a bunch of about 40 to 50 year old white guys, one of them wearing a fedora, I think it might have even had like the little press thing sticking out. We we're like, wait, you guys know this, this is from 2002, right? right I right. mean, what do you, what do you think? Like where it's a bunch of like women and minorities and wearing khakis and jeans and polo shirts, like what are you, what are you doing? So maybe they figured out when they saw us to, to that, that got trimmed. Susan, from Susan took a pull on her uh, cigar and walked out of that, that clubhouse. Maybe they thought they were with the Giants. What do you think, Henry? Um, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, if you walk into any baseball press box, the group of people in there look like they, like a secondhand store exploded on them. <laughs> <laughs> we're not the best dressed group. I had to borrow this sport jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that uh, it, it uh, so many things that we that perceptions that people have about what our our jobs are like and what our our life is like and what a press box is like and what a clubhouse is like is so different than than reality and a lot of it is difficult, frankly. Uh, you know, the working conditions uh, are not as uh, not great in some places, better in other. Nobody's going to feel sorry for us. Don't expect anybody to. But uh, you know, think about that. A lot of times when you read the story. Um, you know, some of those times a lot, you know, a lot of bad stuff had to happen before you got that story. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of stress on deadline. What these people do on a day in day out basis is remarkable. Being able to churn out quality copy, great analysis, get to the bottom line, 
and get to what the story really is. Uh, before we open it up to questions, I do have to ask you to double back on your time covering Barry Bonds. I know you could probably talk for hours on that. No. But, uh, <laughs> if you could give people just a little flavor. We talked about probably the biggest figure in Susan's career has been Billy Bean in an odd way. In your career, uh, possibly the greatest player in history. Well, what I saw on the field was remarkable, and I, I know he was, I mean, I don't, I don't know everything he was injecting into his body. I don't know. Uh, the cream, the clear, Volkswagens, I don't know what he was injecting into his body. <laughs> what he did on the field was just amazing to see, and I'm, I'm, I feel fortunate that I was able to see it. Uh, he was as difficult to deal with um, as you would imagine. Um, he uh, would sometimes be in a playful mood, and you could talk to him, and, and he'd say some stuff, but for the most part, you know, he did look, look at us as the enemy, and now he's friendly with some of us because we have Hall of Fame votes. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, just who, that's just who Barry is. And uh, you just learn to... Actually, one of the big, when he was going through the home run chase, one of the, the best things that the Chronicle did was uh, we, we would double staff it or triple staff it every night, and I would just tell whoever else came. Sometimes it was John Shea, our colleague, our third baseball writer, I'd say, you got Bonds, I got everything else. And, I mean, that was almost like a vacation for me. Um, I do want to clear up one thing, okay? He did not have, like, his whole suite of furniture around his locker. He, he did not have a Barca lounger. He had one of those sort of sleek Scandinavian designs-type um, recliners. I actually own one of those. I'm sure mine didn't cost as much. But, um, and, and, and they got it for him because of his back. And he had a, a TV. He did have his own TV set, but it wasn't 72 inches. And he did have four lockers. Actually, so it kind of was what everybody thought. <laughs> there, there, there was one thing, you know, uh, Marvin Bernard, who was a player for the, the Giants. Uh, and uh, well, Barry, in the, old, in the locker room when AT&T first opened, he had the whole suite. There were four lockers uh, on one wall. Then there was the entrance to the showers, and he had all four. And um, Marvin Bernard, of all people, got in a slump one time. And he decided to change lockers. And the way he did it, did he ask Barry? No, he didn't ask Barry. Um, he had uh, one of those cigar store Indians, which I don't think are politically correct now. But it was one of those cigar store Indians on a platform, and he kept it at his locker. He just said, to heck with this. I'm taking this adjacent locker, which was one of Bonds's four. And he picked up the, the cigar store Indian, and he just plopped it in front of Bonds locker number four. And we just were in the clubhouse. We weren't asking any questions. We were just waiting for Bonds to walk in. And, and Bonds walked in, and he looked at it, and he looked at Marvin, and he looked at all of us, and he just started laughing and did one of these. And that was the end of Barry's Four Lockers. <laughs> it's fantastic stuff. And I, I would like to point out that Henry went through some tough times. Uh, in the early 2000s, the Chronicle was investigating seriously the whole Balco scandal and what was going on across Major League Baseball, some of the proudest reporting in Chronicle history, it, uh, it, it ended up uh, uh, sparking congressional hearings. Um, the idea that we didn't win a Pulitzer Prize for that, I think, is still one of the great injustices in journalists, uh, journalism. Uh, there was a number of people working on that investigation, and whenever they would come up with a new uh, angle, they'd uh, break a new story, there would be a phone call down to the ballpark and they would ask Henry to go up to Barry and say, well, uh, the Chronicle has learned X, Y, and Z. What do you have to say? This was not a fun thing to do. Yeah, that, um, the idea that uh, Mark Fainaruwada and Lance Williams, who yes. wrote Game of Shadows, who used to work here, their idea was that they were going to stay away from the clubhouse, they were going to do their thing, and I would 
be the one to ask Bonds for his reaction to all this. <laughs> I did not get a vote. <laughs> and um, oh, that was Mark, Mark was the one I dealt with because he was the sports writer. Lance was not a sports writer. Mark, Mark was a sports writer at the time or just before that. And uh, my phone would ring and I could be at the ballpark. One time I was at a, a rock concert, you know, one time at dinner with my then wife. And all of a sudden the phone would ring. Oh, hold on a second. And I'd see his uh, extension, Mark's extension. And I would just start going like this. <laughs> Hand tremors would start because I... You know, I'd have to go to sleep that night knowing that what I was going to have to do the next day. But fortunately, Barry kind of knew the drill there, and he, you know, he just, hey, no comment, no comment, no comment. He never really, uh, we never got into it over that. It was uh, Yeoman's work, and uh, hats off to you and the, the team that covered that whole deal. Um, you know, the, that whole steroid era really had its roots in the Bay Area, kind of started under Tony LaRussa. And the A's, and um, Susan had her share of covering that as well. I mean, any thoughts on uh, what you learned out of that? Have things changed? Yeah, well, I mean, I uh, people always say, why don't why didn't the media do more? And we we probably should have, but it did take a federal investigation to get the the ball rolling. You can't um, force people to answer questions. So uh, I think we were all a little bit in the dark initially. I covered the Rangers in '95, '96, and they had Juan Gonzalez and Pudge Rodriguez, who were kind of linked to to steroids too. And we all went like, ah. Oh. That's weird. Pudge came in 80 pounds heavier this year. I wonder how that happened. And you go like, well, I was eating my mom's cooking in Puerto Rico. It sure was good. And we're like, okay. But um, when the rumors really started uh, about some of the A's players, I I said, well, I'll ask some questions and I will not name names. But I asked one of them who was great to deal with, wonderful guy, and I said, oh, you know, steroids, and what do you think? Have you ever done it? You know, have you ever, ever seen any evidence of it? Have you been tempted by it? And he went like, oh, wait, did I hear somebody calling me? I've gotta, I think I've got to go hit. I'm going to go hit in the cage right now. Sorry. And he ran off. And then uh, there was another guy who uh, was uh, very muscular and had kind of been whispered about, and I went over and asked him. Also, same thing. Really great guy to deal with. Wonderful guy to deal with. And... Uh, I sat down and asked him the same set of questions, and he said, oh, those guys cheating and taking steroids, and they're taking money out of my pocket, and I'm, I'm in the gym six hours a day, and they're stealing from me. And I went, oh, yeah, that's, that's terrible. I totally believed him, and they were both named in the Balco report. So, <laughs> man, I don't know what more I could have done except try to ask. So, An interesting era, and we're still dealing with the, uh, the repercussions every year in the Hall of Fame vote. Uh, I hope you follow we have, what, six or seven voters on the, uh, on the Chronicle staff. I'm very proud of that, including uh, the former president of the BBWAA, the Baseball Writers Association of America. Susan Slusser served as president. The first, the first woman. Know, but, uh, Susan was the first Canadian Muslim to be elected. <laughs> <laughs> and also the first woman. Uh, we're very proud of that. So way to go there. So I, I would like to open this up to uh, uh, our att- attendees tonight. Take it away. What's your question? Hi, my name is uh, Jacob from Oakland. Uh, big A's fan, uh, former Giants fan. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I have a question for Susan, um, and then actually one for both of you guys. Uh, with the opener, um, does that replace the fifth starter? Does that go before a fifth starter? Does that come after a fourth starter? You know. Uh, so that's my question for you. And then for both of you, um, you hear a lot about uh, clubhouse cancers. Um, and I wonder what, what makes a clubhouse cancer. And you don't have to name names. I'll name names. Uh, 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 Brett Laurie, uh, A.J. Pruszynski, Arthur Rhodes. Um, so, yeah, those are my questions. Thank you. 
Uh, I'll start with the, the opener question. Um, I think it's still kind of being defined uh, and how many, how many times you can use it because a, you know, roster, there are, it's a 25-man roster. If you're going to use it more than maybe twice a week, you'd really need an expanded roster uh, or to go with maybe just like one extra catcher and one extra position player because you'd need such a big bullpen to be able to really pull it off. Um, so I think it's probably realistically one time through um, so I guess if you want to be very specific, taking, taking the spot of a fifth, fifth starter. Um, but you're going to have a, you know, whatever, some teams call it the length guy who comes in after that, who's usually a starter like Daniel, Daniel Mengden did last year, who was clearly a starter, and he would then pitch the next five or six innings. So, um, you know, it's really the idea behind it I, I kind of like. You're trying to keep your main guy who's pitching the most innings from essentially facing the one, two, three, maybe four hitters as many times as he would have is if he pitched the first inning. So he's just a, you're taking a little of the stress off of him, but how it translates into, you know, times through the rotation and how many times you can use it for a week. I think we're that's going to be teams are going to be experimenting with that. We're going to see that for the next couple of years how teams use that, and it could it could mutate into all sorts of things. Maybe a guy goes two innings and the next guy goes three, and it could just wind up being full bullpen games for a lot of teams, especially the ones that are tank- tanking, like Henry mentioned. Yeah, um, you know, Bruce Bochy is a wine connoisseur. Uh, he actually has told me he would love to retire in Sonoma, and I told him I will get him the, any bottle of wine he wants uh, from Sonoma or Napa if I can be in the room when he tells Madison Bumgarner he's coming in in the third <laughs> inning and there's going to be an open. I want to be there. Yeah. Uh, the Giants, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, Zadie told us at the winter meetings that we might do openers. We might have starters go back to back. And we all wrote it. And it was a big story. And then the next day when we had our access with Zadie, guys, guys, you guys blew that up really big, didn't you? Well, yeah, it's never been done before here. And, and really, uh, the opener thing is, is really about um, keeping pitch counts down uh, for younger pitchers. And also, uh, if you just don't have too many good starters and... You know, if you've got a if you've got a right-handed reliever who is uh, is really effective against right-handers, like the Rays had Sergio Romo, he was the first opener, and your starter that night is yeah, it's sort of like you know maybe a fifth guy, maybe a fourth guy, uh, and and the, you're facing a team that has a, a right-heavy lineup, all the power is right-handed or most of the power. Well, you know, the idea is stick him out there and and let him get the first few outs and then bring the less effective starter in. And I don't think we're going to see a ton of it, especially now that, you know, they've re-signed Holland. Um, you know, you're going to have Bumgarner. You, you can't do this with a guy like Samarja. I mean, he's a guy coming off a shoulder injury. You can't tell him, well, just go warm up, and, and you know, we're not sure when we're going to bring you in. Uh, but you might, see it with, uh, you might see it with a guy like uh, Stratton or a guy like Rodriguez or a guy like Pomerantz because they're going to try and keep their innings down. And in terms of clubhouse cancer, it's really as simple as it sounds. Guys that who just can't get along with anybody, who, uh, who rat out players. You know, they have a, an omerta. I guess the, uh, the mafia calls it omerta, you know, that kind of code of silence. You don't rat out other players. You don't, you know, you do your job when you're supposed to do it. You don't blame others in the media. And, and after a while, you, you get a certain player who, who does all that stuff, um, and it just wears on people, and it just becomes like 24 against one. 
Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll address that and actually name a couple names because you mentioned Brett Laurie, who was not a clubhouse cancer. He was, just could be annoying because he never stopped talking. And he, was so, he had so much energy, like he was so fidgety. Um, you know, the coaching staff felt like you, you got to put him on the field every day because if he sits in the dugout during a game, he distracts everybody because he just can't, he just can't, he couldn't handle it. Like, just really way too much energy. I think he was in the wrong So He's a Canadian, and we're like, why didn't you play hockey? Hockey would have been perfect for a guy like that. <laughs> But, um, yeah, the, when I've seen it, it's been um, especially the guys who point fingers um, in, in the press, um, particularly if they're catchers, if they're the guys that always blame, you know, uh, essentially the pitcher for a bad pitch and never say, like, I called the wrong thing. Or, so, you know, catchers are supposed to really, you know, take the brunt of any mistakes a pitcher makes if you talk to them about a specific pitch. Um, and also guys who are really moody, like you don't know what you're going to get from day to day. Um, it, it's, the A's have had a, well, they certainly had one guy that I think everybody knew about it. And you just didn't, like, one day he would be super friendly, and the next day he, there would be a dark cloud. And the, the other players felt like that, too. Like, he was the same to everybody, just uh, you never knew what you were going to get. Um, and then sometimes you get two guys that don't like each other and kind of go at each other all year, and that can be bad, too. And I think it's, I mean, I, I reported on it. The A's had the clubhouse brawl the other uh, couple years ago with Danny Valencia and Billy Butler, and they had spent essentially the entire year yelling at each other. So... Um, you know, that, that can happen. That must too. be comfortable. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Why don't we move it around and get a couple more questions in from the audience? Uh, Tracy, do we have someone from uh, left field? <laughs> or right, depending. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, first, I want to thank you and your colleagues for always putting out great work every single day. In our family, we start with the Sporting Green. And thank you. As a Newly retired fifth grade teacher, I always told my students to read the sporting page for quality writing. So anyway, thank you for that. My question is kind of broad. I wanted to know how social media has changed your job. If you feel like you have to be on Twitter all the one. time. I'll take it. Um, it's uh, especially Twitter. Twitter's the main one. I mean, I think we all feel now like we have to rush to get everything out. Um, and, and sometimes you have to take a step back and remember that it's more important to be right than first um, and ac accurate, all that kind of thing. Uh, and I sometimes, I feel like I, we all get caught up in this too much, um, and I'm included. Like, I spend too much time during the game, like, tweeting what's happening in the game. And people, the second you stop doing it, people say, like, why aren't you tweeting everything, um, but I think our work would probably be better served to focus on what we're doing for the, the paper. Hi, Al. <laughs> so maybe writing a better story for Al. Um, but I, I actually really like it. I, the thing I like best is the interactions with people, which you know people think of Twitter and especially maybe even a, a woman sports writer and think, oh, it's probably terrible. My experience on Twitter has been largely positive, and I really like the feedback from fans and the questions I get from fans. I get really smart questions, and sometimes people give me ideas, um, things I've never thought of. You, you can lose perspective when you're covering a team. You're sort of almost in the bubble. You know, you feel like, well, why, why doesn't everybody know that? I know that. Uh, and, but you forget that people aren't in it in the trenches every day with you. you, you um, so I, I love, I love that interaction. I've actually wound up with a lot of friends, you know, A's fans and other baseball fans who are now actually, like, really close friends from Twitter, which sounds weird. They're not stalkers that's, or anything. They're perfectly nice, normal. I found my guitar teacher on A's Twitter. That's, that's a little scary. Before we hear from Henry, that, that is a little scary, Susan. Um, 
it's been interesting as an editor because in the early days of social media, there was a lot of pushback from the writers who didn't really want to get involved. But once they started to see what kind of audience feedback they got from Twitter and what kind of interaction there, now I'm almost worried that they're overly addicted to Twitter, to, to Susan's point. I think what you'll find in most games is heavy tweeting early on and then later in the game as you have to really bear down and start writing your stories. Um, you'll see it uh, uh, taper a little bit. There's a lot of danger with social media as well in terms of how you interact with people and you gotta keep your head on uh, and be cool about it. Are you talking about the once a month you call me into your office, close the door and have a talk? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the funny thing I think about, so everything Susan said I agree with, the funny thing I think about it is that anybody can be a, a reporter. Everybody uh, can be a reporter, everyone who has a phone can be a photographer, so, so even I, I don't consider myself a celebrity, but I, I mean, I'm not a, you know, really, you know, famous person around the world. But in the Bay Area, people know me. I'm on TV. My picture's in the thing. And, you know, I have to worry. I mean, I can't go into a 7-Eleven, not that I do this, but, like, berate the guy because, uh, you know, the, one of the, the, the six-pack of beer I want is cold. Um, you, you just have to be careful. And, and then uh, what happens is you have a lot of young kids, especially in high school and college, who they, they find they get, like, really... Uh, nuzzle up to agents and they get like a bunch of contract stuff before we do and you know there, there's this rush to get information out and a scoop nowadays you know when, when I first started a scoop was you wrote something and then you went to bed and you you hope that nobody would have it in the next morning's paper now if somebody has uh, a story about a trade or something seven seconds in front of the other one it's a scoop and then you see you see these national guys like John Heyman and Ken Rosenthal and, and those guys and, and that's all they do and to Al's credit, I, I want to say this, to Al's credit, he realizes the bigger picture. He doesn't want us wasting, I mean, he wants us to break stories, and we do break stories. But to his credit, he doesn't want us to get caught up in all that and lose the big picture. He'd rather have us get the news however we get the news and write a good analysis piece that you people want to read. Social media has commodified news, and what, to Henry's point, you could break a story seven seconds later, all your competitors retweet it, and then we're all back at square one. What I think you want as readers, and I know Susan loves to break news, she differs with me a little bit on this, I think it's important. What I think what, what we bring to the table is smart analysis and uh, deep behind the scenes knowledge, and uh, that's, for anything, um, I'd I, I like more than anything a conceptual scoop in, in something that's happening with the team that other people don't see. Um, so that plays into social media as well. Tracy, we have a couple more. I saw my first game in 1958 in Seals Stadium. All right. Nice. So I'm going to ask this of both of them. Your favorite and least favorite ballparks for two things, ballpark ambience and concessions. <laughs> Great I mean, question. I'll, I'll give you my you know, worst concessions by nine miles any place I've ever been at Dodger Stadium. <laughs> Yeah, we First don't go ball. to concessions. I'm, I'm a terrible person to ask about concessions because I don't eat meat, so um, I usually stick with like the salad bar in the press room. Um, but, I, I, but I go out and look around the stadiums a lot, and um, it's almost hard to narrow down best stadiums because there are so many good ones. I love, uh, obviously, San Francisco's is great. Um, I love Pittsburgh's. Pitts, Pittsburgh's stadium is fantastic, the gorgeous view of downtown. It's actually a great city, really underrated city. Uh, and I, you know, Seattle's bar, ballpark is, is wonderful, and I love the old one. You know, you can't beat Fenway and Wrigley and, and Dodger Stadium. For ambiance, I, I love Dodger Stadium too. Sorry, Giants fans, but um, uh, I, I like AT&T or Oracle or whatever they're calling it today. Um, better than Dodger Stadium, I'll say that. I hate Dodger Stadium. <laughs> Pandering. Pandering. I grew up. 
up in Andrew. Los Angeles, all of the great memories I have watching baseball with my father, rest his soul, my love for the game was nurtured at Dodger Stadium, and now it, uh, it is a blank hole. Uh, it, it, the noise level, and some of you follow me on social media know this, uh, I mean, they, they really are going for an audience that is age 20 to 27, and there's nothing for us, you know, older folks. I could never take, if my dad were alive today, I could not take him to a game at Dodger Stadium, and he, he would be out of there in two minutes. And uh, it's, uh, it's just a, the working conditions are bad for us because it's, it's an old stadium. It's, it's, uh, the, it's the second oldest stadium in the National League. The f- oldest stadium in the National League, to me, is the best uh, park for ambience, uh, which is uh, Wrigley. I mean, Wrigley Field, terrible working conditions, but, but ballpark ambience uh, in that neighborhood, the Ivy. They, the, when we go, the press box is sort of connected to the roof, and we, there's one elevator that's down the left field line uh, over, you know, you go up and then you walk out and you're kind of in the left field corner. And what I do is I will actually get off the elevator, I'll walk over uh, a few sections where the seats are, and I will just put my bag down, I will just sit in the seats and look. And, uh, you know, I, I've been to Fenway. It's similar. Uh, I haven't been there as much. Uh, don't like it. I mean, it, I like it. It's just not Wrigley. And in terms of concessions, I think one of the things people don't understand, we don't eat the concessions most of the time. Uh, we, every ballpark has a commissary. It's for the media, scouts, team officials. It's like a buffet. You know, you pay anywhere from 9 to $15, and you can get a buffet. And uh, if, if, if I ate con- concessions all the time, I would, you know, well, I'd be bigger than this. Um, <laughs> And uh, so, I mean, it's a hard question for me to answer because I just don't eat them a lot. I do remember Ray Ratto used to go out and get a couple uh, bratwurst. A couple of sausages every game. A couple sausages. Why he looks like a troll. (laughs) In Texas, you can get, there is a vegan concessionaire in Texas. In Texas of all places. How about that? I covered the Rangers for two years. I was like, where was this when I was covering the Rangers? Come on. I I will say, though, that, uh, I mean, there's sometimes that at AT AT&T or Oracle or whatever, uh, that, you know, I, I just don't, you know, sometimes they repeat stuff, and I just don't want to eat that again. When I do go into the stands, I like the, uh, the pizza they sell. What, what's the name of it? Tony's? Yeah, the new yeah, one by the Slice. The, the Tony's, good, the yeah. Slice pizza down there in the club level, and uh, the cha-cha bowls. Cha-cha bowl. All right, let's those. hear it. The food trucks at the Coliseum are very good. They've been a great addition, especially for people How that want anything at all ethnic or a vegetarian or different. It's, they're terrific. Let's wrap it up there and give another round of applause to Henry Schulman and Susan Slusser. Thank you for listening to another Giants Double Play and A's Plus joint podcast from a baseball talk that we had at the Chronicle on Tuesday, February 5th. If you are interested in attending one of these subscriber events, uh, you can subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. Giants Double Play is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please subscribe, tell a friend, or give us a review. You can support Giants Double Play and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to the Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. You can find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. If you want to find me on Twitter, I am at Hank Shulman, or you can email me at hshulman at sfchronicle.com. Hey, 